Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. The emotion. And Dortmund against all the odds. Our European champions. Hey, Borussia-Fans, welcome to Believe in Borussia, episode number 28. My name is Tilo and I am your host. In today's episode, we will talk a little bit about Stefan Reuter, who is the general manager of Augsburg. We haven't really touched on that game at all in the podcast. So I want to use that opportunity to talk a little bit about Stefan. And then, of course, we will continue with our second part of the Borussia Dortmund history, the first real decade, so to speak, 1910 to 1920. How did the club start to play? How did it get its colors? What happened during the World War? All questions I'm going to answer in a bit. But before we get into it, just a quick word from our sponsor, BetOnline. You can head on over to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use the promo code BELIEVE50 to receive your bonus from basketball, football, baseball, postseason, NHL, boxing, UFC and of course soccer. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for you over at BetOnline. So Borussia's last game before the international break was against Augsburg. And while it was a much tighter affair than it needed to be, considering the chances that were squandered in the second half, it was still a win and that's all that matters and nobody got further injured. And as you know, this isn't really the podcast where we will debate for an hour and a half now whether Marius Wolf was efficient enough or should have moved five yards back. That's for other podcasts to dive into. What I want to touch on is someone that has been of great service to both clubs, and that's Stefan Reuter. Stefan Reuter, who is Augsburg's general manager these days, used to play for Borussia Dortmund, and he did so for quite a while. From 1992 to 2004, he wore the black and yellow shirt 421 times, 307 times in the Bundesliga alone. And he captained the team in the final stages of his career on road to the 2002 league championship with Borussia Dortmund. Dede Koller! Jetzt ist er drin! Und Everton! He's probably one of the most decorated German players, period. He was part of Germany's World Cup winning team in 1990, getting subbed in in the final. He won the Euro 96. He won the Champions League in 97. He has five German championships to his name. And his play was quite stellar. There were bigger names. Müller, Sammer, more popular players with the fans like Stefan Schapusa. But Stefan Reuter was integral 
to the team's success. He was technically adept. He had very few weaknesses, if any. And he was fast as hell. Tobo Reuter was his nickname. He ran the 100 meters in under 11 seconds. That's really fast. He reminds me a little bit of Rafa Guerrero today. While there are other stars that have been grabbing the headlines like Haaland or Sancho, he's still one of our most important players. If Rafa has a good game, we are good. If he has a stinker, then we have a problem. He's easily in the top four in terms of talent on the pitch, no matter which other big name is out there. He's that good. And so was Reuter. And most recently, Stefan Reuter has turned Augsburg into a perennial Bundesliga team, which is a quite remarkable achievement in itself. He's the general manager since 2012 and has been keeping them in the league ever since. With one of the smallest budgets in the league, he has managed them to finish as high as Europa League and made the most out of their very scarce resources while continuing to consolidate the club. I wonder why does his name never seem to come up with a BVB job? Is it a geographical reason? Does he not want to live in the more rugged Ruhr area? Right now in Augsburg, he's only 60 miles away from his birthplace in picturesque Franconia. But he spent most of his playing career in Dortmund, his best years for sure, so he's gotta get on with the regions and the folks to some degree. Sure, if you can have a great job close to home and family, and you actually like both your family and your job, well then it's a great additional perk. So I, so I guess what I'm saying is, he's not sitting on packed bags, and he's pretty comfortable where he's at, but I don't think he would have a problem to move to Dortmund, if that's even necessary these days. So is it a skills or expertise reason? Well, I mean his record is pretty stellar considering what he's working with at Augsburg. The tricky part here is that that doesn't always transfer. And the best example here is Heidel at Mainz versus Heidel at Schalke. And I'll admit, I was very worried when Schalke got Heidel because I thought, if Heidel can do this to Mainz, what is he going to do with the resources of Schalke? Well, him and a bunch of other people managed to squander it all away. And now they're in the second Bundesliga, so hoof. We dodged that bullet, but this is about Reuter and it would be unfair to Stefan Reuter to hold that over him and I think it would only be right to give him the benefit of the doubt. At the very least, he's experienced with a good network. So is it maybe something personal? Is it relationships why he's not coming up so much as a Dortmund potential? I am really not aware of any beef, but I also don't recall any praises or love lost with Reuter. I mean, he's been visiting Dortmund a lot with Augsburg, but he's hardly ever the topic around the game. And I'm sure he likes it that way. But neither in the club nor around the independent media it comes up. Think about Jurgen Klopp or even Tuchel coming back to Dortmund. The kind of media attention that generates. Okay, that's a different animal. They're coaches. They're also both charismatic. But still, given Reuters Borussia Dortmund history, I'm surprised it doesn't surface more. I mean, Reuter even worked for Borussia in 2004 when he switched straight from the pitch to the boardroom as an executive assistant at Borussia Dortmund. Um, I think worked in a, 
and I think he worked in the sponsorship department until he got hired by 1860 Munich half a year later as their general manager. So he's no stranger to Dortmund in executive positions. So if it's not the geography, and if it's not the skills, and if it's not burned bridges, then it's probably a personal decision. Reuter quit 1860 when they wanted to curtail his powers. And at Borussia Dortmund, he would definitely have to deal with more stakeholders, more people involved, and more scrutiny and more pressure. Or different kind of pressure. I'm sure there's lots of pressure at a team like Augsburg, just like there's lots of pressure at Freiburg, for example, or Bielefeld to just stay in the league. But it's a different type of pressure. And maybe the club just has never offered Reuter a role that he deems fit for himself and consequently he's rather in a situation that is tailored to his needs. It's close to home. He's in full control. And maybe Borussia knows this and thus has never really made a serious advance towards Reuter. Maybe he'd be an option for an Aki Watzke replacement. Watzke has been announcing his intentions to step down for a while now. And I think you can do worse than Reuter. And it might be the role change that is big enough for him to lure him out of Franconia and back into the Ruhr area. So when Aki's farewell is moving closer, I'd be curious to see if the name Stefan Reuter will be circulating more. As promised, we will now dive back into the history of Borussia Dortmund. If you missed last week's episode, We covered the years 1900 to 1910, or 1909 I should say. We left off at the founding of the club on the 4th Advent, Sunday, December 19th of 1909, so basically 1910, and covered that extensively there. So if you missed that episode, go back and check it out. And today we are going to talk about the next 10 years, the first decade of the club's existence, and we'll get right into it. So Borussia Dortmund was born out of a group of passionate Catholic soccer players that broke away from their sodality, which is their youth church organization, to form a soccer club as their chaplain de facto forbade playing the game within the church confine. And that chaplain Dewald who got punched in the face trying to break up the fateful founding meeting on that Sunday, December 19th. Well, he did not accept defeat. What he did do is talk to the other chaplains and fathers and he went to the players' families. He expelled club members from the Trinity Youth Sodality and he was outlining the evil of the sport in the Christmas Mass just days later. Founding date, December 19th, Christmas, coming right up. So imagine sitting in church, being expelled from your youth group, which is your key social anchor, and then being publicly shamed in front of a full house during Christmas. Not very nice. And it worked. Some of the 18 founding members actually left right again in the next couple of days. But Borussia Dortmund survived. And after a brief stint of Heinrich Unger as the first president, Franz Jacobi, who is one of the most important figures in club history, possibly the most important figure in the club's history, actually, took over 
and he would guide Borussia Dortmund through a very challenging decade as the club's chair until 1923. The thing is, many things get started. Clubs, businesses, hobbies, but very few remain. And the first year is always the toughest. Today, Borussia Dortmund is a great club and has no problems attacking talent on and off the pitch, investments, support. But 111 years ago, hmm, it was just an obscure gathering of fans of that new, weird, and not mainstream accepted game of soccer. Again, think esports. Do you know your current esport pro teams in your area? Would you invest or support them? Like, watch them on Twitch and, I don't know, buy a subscription? Or if you're in business, sponsor them? Even if you played FIFA or, I don't know, League of Legends yourself, would you find it suspicious that half of the esports roster looks like, well, they aren't even of legal driving age? Well, in 50 years, these esports teams, they might be major franchises recognized in the mainstream and people will follow and be drawn to these clubs like today's NFL, top soccer teams, baseball teams, and so on. Safe to say Borussia Dortmund in the beginning was very small potatoes and basically carried by the passion of the young players. Not even for the club, I guess. In the beginning, it was mostly about the game. And then the club became their vehicle to live their soccer love through Borussia Dortmund. So Jacobi was an integral figure and he made the club last. He steered it through the hardships of the First World War nonetheless. But first things first, let's start with the first year. So the lads founded a club and now they needed to get things off the ground in 1910. But what to do? They had to find a playing site. They had to find opponents. How do you get organized? Well, Jacobi, who had taken office mid-1910, went straight to work on these questions. He was already the club's treasurer up to that point. Borussia Dortmund was just one of many new soccer clubs that were mushrooming throughout the land. If you look at the numbers of German pro clubs you see today, you get an indication of when they were founded. Bayer 1904 Leverkusen, Borussia Mönchengladbach 1900, Schalke 0.3 plus 1, Borussia Dortmund 09. So lots of teams were founded and apparently a few of them remained. It was so many teams actually that the West German Sporting Association had put a temporary ban on accepting new soccer clubs into their ranks. They simply could not keep up getting all these new teams involved, reworking the schedules. It was all too much. So without registration... There wasn't a possibility to participate in organized league play. And how important it was to register for the future of the club will become more evident in a moment. It always helps if you have passion. And Jacobi and his men had it in spades. The Jacobi brothers had been fixtures in all of the sporting events of the youth sodality prior to their ousting, whether it was soccer, track and fields, gymnastics and they had made their love for the game known throughout the city. From Dortmund's rugged north, where Borussia Dortmund was founded in a blue-colored neighborhood around the Borsigplatz, to its more bourgeois south. And if you recall from the first episode, the first soccer club in Dortmund was the Dortmunder 
SC95 or in the beginning FC for Football Club 1895, founded by Benno Elkan with his classmates at his prep school. And another young man involved in the game in the city was a fella by the name of Walter Sanz, who would go on to become the first managing director of the German FA in the 1910s. He had befriended the Jacobi brothers over the years and they were all brothers in spirit by their love of the game. And Sanz's knowledge of the sports administration in the region proved invaluable as he suggested a simple but very effective trick. Add a track and field department to the club. Now you might think, hold up, didn't they start this team for the very explicit reason to play soccer because they could have done track and field at the church and nobody would have cared? Well, the idea was that there was no bans on track and field clubs. And it was a much easier lift to register a soccer department of an already registered club than a new club altogether. So with the Trojan horse of track and field, Borussia Dortmund entered the official ranks of German sport on June 19th in 1910. And with a little more help from their friend's sons, the soccer department followed suit on December 3rd, 1910. Borussia Dortmund soccer was now official and the foundation was laid to what eventually become the best soccer team in Germany. Borussia Dortmund's first official match was finally held on January 15, 1911 on the White Meadow, which was a public sporting ground just down the road from Borsigplatz. It was a simple public pitch with a running track and a jumping pit. The team changed often in the basement of the Wildschutz restaurant where its founding session had taken place and they had to bring their own goalposts with them and take them down after the game because otherwise they would have got stolen. If that sounds a lot like your kid's soccer weekend, you know, going to some remote public pitch, bringing your own nets, your own tents, your own seat to sit in, changing in the car, well, it is because it was. It was very grassroots, it was very new, had nothing to do with what professional football looks like today. And the club had actually continued to use their kids from the sodality which featured a blue and white striped shirt, which are both common liturgical church colors. And they added a red sash as a token to their organizational independence from the church, but also their working class roots. Despite that very questionable choice of color, Borussia triumphed in a 9-3 victory against VfB Dortmund in their first game. As the season was already halfway through when Borussia Dortmund's soccer department was registered, the club had to wait until the start of the 1911-1912 season to play their first officially sanctioned championship game. Starting in the lowest local C-class league, just as Borussia Dortmund is now starting on the very lowest level for the ladies, Borussia Dortmund beat a team from the city of Rauxel 1-0 in their inaugural match. So, so yeah, it's a very different concept still from the US where you would basically buy a license and depending on how much money you would put on the table, you could go higher or lower. In Germany, normally when you register your team, you start in the lowest league and then you have to work your way up. That first full season in 1911-1912 was a winning one and saw Borussia Dortmund promoted to the B-class in the following year. 
the fact that Borussia Dortmund was one of the few lucky new soccer clubs that had gained registration attracted the attention across the city's soccer landscape. There were many new clubs who were still waiting to get accepted into regular league play and they were growing frustrated with the lack of opportunity. Three such local teams decided to join forces with Borussia. Renania, Deutsche Flagge and Britannia Dortmund. Now Britannia was led by a loud and brash individual called August Busse who would also go on to become a key figure for Borussia Dortmund. In fact, he was a key figure from the very start. At the constituting meeting, when the merger was finalized, Busse had prepared a very important request and he had orchestrated his Britannia members and some of the supporters of the other clubs to go along with him. Now remember, Borussia Dortmund was still playing in blue and white due to their Catholic background. Well, Busse wanted to make a change to that. He had made sure to have enough votes beforehand and put a new color scheme up for vote. His argument was simple. The merger would make Borussia Dortmund a new integrated club that now had Protestants and Catholics and it should reflect that newness in its appearance. Well, conveniently he already had a solution for that because Britannia's yellow shirts with the big black B would fit perfectly with Borussia as well. The vote was approved and Borussia Dortmund has played in black and yellow ever since. It is kind of wild to think that one of the most distinct features of this club, its black and yellow colorways, were the results of this. A rather coincidental merger, a power play if you want. I think it's hard to overestimate the importance of the black and yellow for the club Borussia Dortmund. It's extremely rare in global soccer and especially amongst the top teams worldwide. So it has a tremendous recall. It stands out. And because of that, it's a powerful source of identification and also a very potent marketing tool. But Busse and his men did not only bring new colors and shirts, they also brought new players. And consequently, Borussia finished third in 1913 and finally won promotion to the A-League in the summer of 1914. Alas, it wasn't going to happen at the outbreak of World War I which stopped all sporting activities in its tracks as many of the young men were drafted into the army and sent away to war. Franz Jacobi was a steel mill clerk at the Westfalenhütte and therefore considered a relevant worker to the war effort. Luckily, his boss was a soccer fan and he was very supportive of Jacobi's many soccer-related activities. The position also kept him away from the front. Jacobi's leadership in response to the hardships of the First World War laid the foundation to what would become the Borussia Dortmund family as the board started to organize support for the families and relatives of their fighting teammates back in Dortmund. Between 30 to 50 club members went off to battle and Franz Jacobi wrote each and every one of them a letter every month. It kept the young men close and Borussia on the mind of its young founding fathers. While in the trenches at the Western Front, Heinrich Unger, a founding member, captioned the pioneer song about the Argonne Forest in France with the lines, But there is one thing that shall remain, 
Borussia Dortmund will never go under. The melody and lyrics eventually made it into the official club anthem. Wir halten fest und treu zusammen. We stand together firm and loyal. And they can still be heard at home matches and official club gatherings. If you want to know more about the song and its way from the Western Front into the stadium, well, then go back to the very beginning, episode number one, recaptures how that song made it from Unger into the club anthem. The club members that had remained in Dortmund organized errand runs for the families like grocery shopping, playtime with the children or just after school aid. They tried the best to provide what the husbands, fathers and sons who were fighting off in the war would normally provide to their families. And despite resources being scarce, they extended help to neighbors, elderly citizens and whoever they could help through those increasingly difficult times. Being rooted in the Christian church, Borussia Dortmund members simply adhered to being compassionate and good Christians. After the war finally ended, They even organized the first German FA-sanctioned charity soccer match in Germany to help returning war veterans and their families. Despite no transportation being readily available and group traveling being severely restricted by the occupying forces, Borussia Dortmund members found a way to get permit from the military commander that traveled 30 miles and raked in 2,500 Reichsmark, a huge amount of money at that time, to bring back to Dortmund. And what did they do with it? They donated the proceeds of that game to the Trinity Church, despite their falling out nine years earlier. But after all, Borussia was family, and the community around the Borsigplatz was collectively hurting and trying to recover. Borussia's president, Franz Jacobi, had lost his younger brother Julius, also a founding member in the war, and of the 18 founding members, a total of nine, did never return from war. In terms of playing after the seasons in 1915 and 1916 had been cancelled altogether, the league play had picked up again in 1917-18, but due to a lack of players and the troubles of the war, Borussia had to wait another year to resume play in the 1918-1919 season, nine months after the war had ended. Another milestone for the club in that time was the draft of the first club charter and its addition to the German club register in May of 1919. While BVB had been part of the West German Sporting Association since 1910, they had not been formally entered into the German club register. Now the Verein, or club, is a very particular German entity to organize non-profit groups, whether it was a singing club, a theater club or a sport club, And consequently, the club's charter vowed to increase public health through soccer and other physical activities. It laid out the fines for no-shows, for tardiness, of course being late in Germany at that time. It was an absolute no-go. And also more curious things like not smoking on the pitch during a game. Getting entered into the German club registry was also necessary to obtain permits to upgrade the White Meadow the public sports park where Borussia Dortmund had been playing, 
so it could handle upper division requirements. But for that, we will look at another episode for the Roaring Twenties. Thank you for tuning in again to Believe in Borussia presented by BetOnline. If you liked that history bit and you missed the first episode, go back to episode number 27. For our next episode, we have a very special guest lined up, an exclusive interview with our good friend Suresh Lechmanan, who is the head of Borussia Dortmund's Singapore office and the real OG when it comes to Borussia Dortmund's international activities. So I can't wait to hear about his experience from the virtual world tour to how Borussia Dortmund fans are in Asia. It's going to be a great conversation, so don't miss it. And until then, a black and yellow shout out across America. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.